Hey, Rachel, how much do you know about Rogue's powers? Enough to use protection. Why? How much does she retain of the people she absorbs? Because usually she loses them, right? But there have been a few stories where they all come back, and there's the whole Carol thing. Okay, so, first of all, like pretty much everyone else on the X-Men, Rogue's powers aren't written all that consistently. Usually she loses absorbed personality traits and powers pretty fast, but sometimes they stick around longer. Length of contact seems to be a factor, but I'd chalk more of the differences up to narrative necessity. Much like the miracles of magnetism. Exactly. Okay, so, but what about Carol Danvers? I mean, she was in Rogue's head for a long time, right? Years. How'd she get out? Did she just gradually fade the way short-term powers seem to? Oh god, no. In fact, her presence in Rogue's had intensified. Rogue was getting flashes of Carol initially, but over time they ended up two distinct personalities sharing one body. Well, that's awkward. Especially when it came to choosing haircuts. So how'd that resolve? Well, partway through the Australian era, Rogue went through the Siege Perilous and emerged with each persona in its own body. Wait, so there were technically two Carol Danverses out there. Carol's Danver. You know what I mean. For a little while. But the Carol who'd been pulled out of Rogue started to break down. They might have had separate bodies, but the two of them were still sharing a joint pool of life force. Where was the real Carol? In space, I think. Right. So anyway, Carol headed to Muir Island, got corrupted by the Shadow King, and went off to find Rogue, who was in the Savage Land with Magneto, who killed the Carol persona off after realizing that murdering half of your crush stole personality before it sucks the life out of her is basically the X-Men's equivalent of chocolate and roses. What?! Rachel Adderton. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 55th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. With, in this case, one of our least favorite plot devices, that being the Beyonder still sticking around and messing everything up. Oh, god damn it! how much longer is he going to be around? Are we not yet through Secret Wars 2? I, I mean, it went on for months and months and months and months across, like, every book in the Marvel Universe, so, no, I will say we're getting there. Finally, I think we have maybe one more episode after this one that he's going to participate in, but yes, this time it's still more Secret Wars 2. This very specifically is why we can't have nice things, why we still can't have nice things in 2015. Well, thank Thankfully, there's never going to be any event called Secret Wars again, so we're going to be just fine. I kind of hate you right now. Yeah, well, that's fair. So last week, we checked out the beginning of X-Factor with Jean Grey coming back and the original five X-Men forming their own team. This week, we're going to go back to what's going on with the X-Men proper in Uncanny X-Men. So Storm is leading the team. Despite not having any superpowers, she beat Cyclops in a duel. She decided the X-Men were the people she wanted to be with. We have also Wolverine, Rogue, Nightcrawler, Colossus, Rachel Summers, who's going by Phoenix these days after getting the Phoenix powers, sort of, and Shadowcat. And these X-Men are not in touch with X-Factor, so they don't know that Jean Grey is back from the dead, and they're not going to find out for a really, really long time, because if there is a running thing that propels X-Men plots, it's that everyone has really poor communication skills. To our younger listeners who may be listening to this episode, social media wasn't really a thing back then, so it actually was possible to not know every detail of the life of everybody you've ever met. So, okay, let's go into what happens in Uncanny X-Men. So we're going to be covering issues 202 to 205, along with a couple issues of Alpha Flight that tie in today. And fortunately, mercifully, only two of those actually tie into Secret Wars. So this all starts with Rogue coming into Rachel Summers' bedroom uh, in the middle of the night for reasons that are not explained. Oh, come on. It's Claremont X-Men. I think we all know. Only to find a holographic projection that Rachel Summers is set to trigger as soon as somebody opens the door saying, hey guys, um, BRB, I've gone to kill 
Until the Beyonder. There's some pudding in the fridge. Uh, I'll be back. Don't stay up too late. You can watch some TV if you want. Now that you're semi-possessed by a cosmic entity, you're too good to just tape a note to the door like the rest of us? Well, I'm just saying. It's way more dramatic this way. So Rogue convenes the X-Men saying, hey guys, um, this may not go well because it involves the Beyonder and nothing ever does. And also Rachel Summers' judgment has historically perhaps not been the best. Yeah, has she ever made a good decision? I mean, she has allowed herself to be talked out of killing people. I guess that's something. That is absolutely something. She was nice to her kid brother. She decided to come to terms with being in a different universe. As opposed to what? Eating him like a gerbil? I mean, that would be an alternative, yes. (laughs) So the X-Men are talking about what to do, and a couple of them, specifically Wolverine and Kitty, are like, well, she may be powerful enough. Maybe we should just let her kill the Beyonder. The Beyonder is awful, and he screws up everything, and he's this enormous, out-of-control cosmic force. Maybe this is for the best. I also want to point out in this scene that Colossus shows up with shredded pajamas, which seems to be a thing that happens to him pretty much daily at this point. What I really like is that Claremont has just stopped showing him shredding them. He just shows the aftermath. Like It's implied that the reader will understand that this is just something that happens. You would think, given the X-Men's access to things like uniforms made of unstable molecules, that someone could just whip him up a pair of size-changing pajamas, or at least something with elastic in it. I mean, he doesn't get that much bigger. I think it's along the lines of the Hulk. Maybe it just makes him feel real buff to be able to shred clothes all the time. I don't know. I mean, this is the mid-80s. I know for a fact that spandex was around at this point. In fact, if spandex was nigh ubiquitous at this point, could Colossus not get his hands on some? It's not ubiquitous when it's blasting. So at this point in Secret Wars 2, the Beyonder's kind of in his healing, helping people phase, you know, and so he's just hanging out in Alcatraz being sort of a beatific, jerry-curled dude. And all of a sudden, there's a mushroom cloud and phoenix flare combination as Rachel Summers basically does her best to nuke the site from orbit. It is incredibly cool looking. I gotta say, one of the really neat things about Rachel Summers having the Phoenix Force, one of the things I like most about it is that she is very familiar with it and how it works. And she claims it deliberately, unlike, well, not Jean, unlike fake Jean, who just sort of ended up with it. She has gone out seeking it, and she uses it so much more deliberately and with so much less restraint. Yeah, which sometimes is good and sometimes is bad, but in this case, it doesn't really help. Well, visually, it's freaking awesome. Oh yes, visually, it's awesome. But in this case, uh, it doesn't really do much because the Beyonder is, of course, all-powerful, so she just basically nukes this little tiny circle into glass, and he just says, what? What? And the Beyonder at this point pulls her through a combination, um, it's a wonderful life slash reverse Gwen Stacy move, where he drags her first to Earth 811 and makes her watch the deaths of the X-Men and then says, okay, so look, I'm going to imbue you with enough power to kill me, just sort of as a thought experiment, but then I'm going to put all of the X-Men in mortal peril and you get to choose whether you're going to kill me or save them. I'm just saying, the reverse Gwen Stacy sounds like a really implausible, unfortunate sex move. We shouldn't do it. I was gonna say I kind of wish you hadn't gone there, but as the person who made the little oh snap icon with that panel, I feel like I don't really have a leg to stand on here. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, a neck to hold your head up with, perhaps? Anyway. You're fired. (laughs) You are so fired. So, um, okay. yeah, anyway. he, he basically gives her this choice. And, you know, this is this is consistent with what he's been doing. He's like, all right, I'm going to make it so you understand what you really want out of life, so you can be the best person you could possibly be. Well, that's how he's rationalizing it. I think what he's actually doing is much more the equivalent of, I am going to put you in a maze with a set of stimuli so I can see what makes people tick. Yeah, kind of that. So these um, Omega Sentinels from the Days of Future Past future that Rachel is familiar with from her own past in the future, you know how it goes, come forward to the present, or I guess back to the present. Oh, geez, this is complicated. 
They come back to the Earth 616 present from the Earth 811 future because the Beyonder can do shit like that. And they attack the X-Men who, with the assistance of cosmically hyper-empowered Phoenix, are able to take them down. There's some phenomenal misuse of magnetism, which I appreciated. Uh, Yeah, I think Magneto controls the weather using magnets at one point, which I guess you technically can do. But come on, that's Stormus Bailiwick. She's right there, dude. That's sort of insensitive. Well, she's depowered at the moment, and she goes on one of her regular monologues about the irony that she is flying a plane when she should be able to fly. But going back to the magnetism thing, I actually want to touch on this because I was hanging out with an engineer friend and he realized that he can actually, using varyingly obscure principles, rationalize almost all of those miracles of magnetism. That makes me really happy. And I really, really want to get him. I know we have a neuroscientist who listens and a couple other folks who we've consulted about science stuff. And I really want to do at some point an Experts Explain Superpowers episode. A science cast. I love it. Yeah. There is one part of the fight. We won't go into the details because it's basically just punching robots a lot. Yeah. But there is one thing I enjoy when one of the Sentinels from Days of Future Past identifies Kitty as Ariel. And Rachel says, wrong, dummy. That was her name in the world we came from. Here she's Shadowcat. And that's really cool because... Previously, Rachel's been very, very mopey about the fact that the world she grew up in isn't, quote, real in the sense that it's the one that she's in right now. And now that's become something that she's proud of because it it really reflects a lot of potential for the world to not go that far south. Yeah, it means that everyone who she's loved, at least everyone who she's loved who's still alive, isn't necessarily automatically super doomed. So, yeah, they basically beat the Sentinels. The X-Men are all saved. Well, except for Nightcrawler, who's not there, which will become relevant later. They sort of confront the Beyonder saying, hey, you can't just like force people to grow. You can't just push them toward this self-knowledge. That's not how it works. They have to earn it. Also, you're a total dick and you're the worst. Man, okay, so I like most things. If you've listened to this podcast, you may notice that I tend to enjoy things if there's any way to enjoy them. And this storyline is bullshit. I love Rachel Summers. She's a phenomenal character and this should have been her big moment. This should have been her embracing the Phoenix, this big dramatic event where she sort of looks at, you know, her place in the cosmos coming from this tragic future and being able to reshape the world. And instead they made it all about the Beyonder. And the story is so much less than it could be. The presence of the Beyonder makes what should be Rachel's big moment into just this distraction. And that sucks because she's a great character. Man, Spider-Man should never have taught that guy to poop. Fucking seriously. Unfortunately, we're not done with that yet because, hey look, in the next issue, it's more of Phoenix versus the Beyonder. It's basically another one-off story with the exact same plotline, and it wouldn't be so weird if they were separated, but it's two issues in a row of Rachel Summers getting up one morning and being like, okay, today's the day I'm going to go murder the hell out of the Beyonder. Okay, so the thing that's different here is that we've had a bit more Secret Wars happen in between, and the Beyonder has gone from this sort of benevolent figure to one who's just become very frustrated and is like, you know what, fuck it, I am going to destroy the universe, this is terrible, I miss being my own dimension, and once I destroy the universe, that'll be the case again. When omnipotent beings have temper tantrums. Yeah. This takes place after the X-Men have fought the Beyonder in San Francisco in one of the main Secret Wars 2 issues. It actually opens with something that, while not Secret Wars 2 related, is very cool. That being the first time on panel, I believe, that we see in flashback Rogue's fight with Ms. Marvel, where Rogue absorbed Carol Danvers' powers and Psyche permanently. This fight between the two of them, it was not a big epic superhero versus supervillain battle, It was just ugly. Yeah, it was Rogue having a bad day and deciding to take it out on Carol Danvers, who in civilian form was, I think, getting her groceries out of the car or something like that, and just attacking her out of nowhere. I mean, Rogue has talked about this before, that she went after Carol because Carol had sort of the life and the potential life that Rogue felt was out of her reach, that she was acutely jealous, that that's why she targeted her. 
but we haven't seen just how thoroughly out of nowhere it really was, and especially for Carol. Exactly, and seeing that rogue from well before she even first appeared, contrasted with the rogue that we know in 1986, it's a hell of a contrast, and it really does show just how far the characters come. So she heads back to where the X-Men are hanging out and finds Kitty Pride in silver armor with a sword. Now, what's happened in New Mutants 37, which takes place between X-Men 202 and 203, is that the Beyonder has killed all of the New Mutants and erased them from everyone's memory. For right. no good reason, because the Beyonder is a raging dick. It's like they never existed, but Kitty Pride, because of her psychic link with Ilyana Rasputin... Oh, no, no, I think it's a special soul connection at this point. Her special soul connection with Ilyana Rasputin, she does remember them, and she's the only one, which has got to suck a lot for her. Yeah, it is rough having queer subtext as your secondary mutation. <laughs> right. And so Kitty's like, oh, God, there's just nothing we can do against this guy. What the hell? And then Rachel Summers shows up. The Rachel Summers that the Beyonder cosmically empowered to be strong enough to kill her last issue, and she's still there. And I love the way she's drawn right here by John Romita Jr. She's not human. It's almost like she's pure cosmic energy poured into a mostly human shape. So she's all, she's a lot more angular. Her eyes aren't quite right. Yeah, the lines of her costume sort of burst out of the borders of her body, which is something that would be normal if, say, we were looking at Sienkiewicz inks, but that's not really a Romita and Williamson thing, and it contrasts her pretty starkly with the rest of the characters who are all very cleanly drawn. Yeah. It's really an example of show, don't tell. Well, okay, it's Claremont, so show and tell, to be fair, but still. And so she tells Rogue and Kitty about her plan. She's like, all right, look, it's very clear at this point the Beyonder's going to destroy the universe no matter what we do. He's all-powerful. He's just going to mess with us and make things worse and worse until everything is over. But if we destroy the universe first, we can destroy him along with it, so at least he won't win. And at least if anybody comes after us, they won't have to deal with him. Again, talking about wasted opportunities... This plot point right here, because they agree to it, some of the X-Men agreeing to end the entire universe, this should have been a big deal. And also it's kind of out of character. I mean, they faced the whole thing with the Emkron crystal earlier where Mad Emperor Deken was trying to destroy the universe, and they were like, no, we're going to fight until the end. And here, they're not. They just give up. The whole point of the X-Men, something that has defined them from the start, is tenacity in the face of impossible odds. They are at this point outlaw superheroes. They are superheroes who are literally being hunted by everyone around them, by every legal body, for a world that is pretty much hell-bent on oppressing them, and they're still doing it. And while I will admit that the Beyonder definitely constitutes extreme and unusual circumstances, it's frustrating to see them break that far from that core resolve. Anyway, some of the X-Men agree, others... Phoenix just takes their life forces while they're in their sleep as she merges into this gestalt entity. Well, or in Storm's case, while they're awake. Yeah, Storm resists, and Phoenix grabs her psyche anyway, and she flies out into space, past the Starjammer, past the Watcher. And she grabs those guys, too, on her way. To basically go to the Emkron Crystal, you know, the nexus of all reality that contains a nebula inside. She's basically going to break open the Emkron Crystal and destroy the universe, but as she opens her consciousness to it, well... You know, I kind of just want to I just want to read this narration because this issue is not that great, but this part I think is awesome. At first, she discovers darkness, absolute, stygian, impenetrable. It is herself, the shadow of reality, able to perceive nothing beyond that self, for what is not real does not exist and therefore cannot be. Then, prompting both surprise and awe, she espies light, speckling her ebony self like fireflies in the night, the brightest are stars. Old, young, fiercely new-formed, barely aglow, hot, cool, some proud in their splendid solitude, others prouder still because they nurture planets. Each planet is a light, and each thing that lives upon that planet, a mad, crazy, wondrous collage of color, wildly beautiful, ever-changing, races newly born, others breathing their last. 
Animals and sentient beings ruled by passion, by intellect, by committing acts magnificent and awful, glorious and obscene. Savage tribes, civilized societies, warriors, esthetes, oppressed oppressors, the best, the worst, who love, hate, create, smash, slay, are slain. Impossibly, she touches every one. Regardless of how great or small, their lives become hers. For this timeless instant, she experiences their dreams, their yearnings, their terrors. All they were and hope to be, the totality of their beings. And this continues on to the next page as we see once again silhouetted Rachel basically struggling with herself and coming to terms with all of this consciousness and hearing suddenly and strongly Aurora's voice in her head telling her, look, you can say you're destroying the universe to stop the beyonder and you can put it in those abstract terms, but what you need to really understand, what you need to come face to face with here is that what you are destroying is each of these individual people, each of these individual lives. You are snuffing all of this out on the gamble that's going to stop one person. Is that actually really what you want to be doing here? And Rachel realizes it isn't. And the Beyonder, super frustrated, suddenly comes down and says, hey, I gave you this chance to go out in a blaze of glory, and you blew it. I guess I'm just going to have to take you out. You know, better yet, let me just take your power back. All the power I gave you, Rachel Summers, I'm bringing it back to myself. You're squandering it. And she says, okay, sure, yeah. You, You want that? Come take it. And gives him back not only her power, but the experience, again, of all of those individual lives. And the emphasis that if he really wants anything of value from the world, he is going to have to have the experience of becoming mortal, of living as a human, which is what he's then going to do in the conclusion to Secret Wars. Yeah, and that is, thankfully, the last time we'll see the Beyonder in Uncanny X-Men. New Mutants, on the other hand. Well, we'll get to that. So, yeah, that's that two-parter, and, you know, there's some real good stuff in there, but overall, it just feels like such a waste. Thankfully, the next couple of issues are not. They are both freaking stellar. So the next issue is X-Men 204. We are going to look in on one of the X-Men who is notably missing from the Beyonder stuff. That is Kurt Wagner, Nightcrawler, who is hanging out in New York with his lady friend Amanda Sefton. It is about goddamn time we are seeing a focus on Nightcrawler. He's such an amazing character, but in this whole last era of X-Men, even though he's been leading the team, we've barely seen anything from him. Barely any dialogue, barely any plot development, barely anything. You know, I've kind of got a theory about that, which is that the last era of X-Men has been really, really dark and really necessity-driven. And Nightcrawler is not a character who has ever fit well with that dynamic. This is him kind of stuck into a team that he's a really poor fit for at that point. Absolutely, yeah. Now, he is having a major crisis of faith triggered by, as are all difficult and unpleasant things in the Marvel Universe at this point, the Beyonder. And he gets in a big fight with Amanda Sefton because he's being all dark and she storms off. And so Nightcrawler, you know, as she leaves, is being all mopey. But then here's a very familiar sound. And that sound is... Sflang with two N's. Sflang. And he's like, wait a minute, I know what Sflang means. Sflang means that the modified garbage truck of Arcade just slammed its weird, like, uh, accordion-type tube down on top of a person to bring them to Murder World. It must be so convenient to live in a world where distinctive noises are spelled out. It's like when you're listening to the radio and you hear the first couple of guitar licks, and you're like, hey, I know that song. Hey, I know that Sflang. <laughs> I also want to say this is a a guest artist on this issue. This is uh, June Brigman, who reminds me very, very much of Paul Smith, um, just in terms of her very clean lines, expressive faces, and especially the way she draws women. So Nightcrawler's like, you know what? I have been just like marinating in emo doom for ages. This is what I need. I need to rescue a pretty lady from an evil cinematic villain, and I'm going to do the hell out of that. 
So Nightcrawler is so well suited to Murder World as a hero because I feel like more than most of the other X-Men, he kind of gets Arcade's internal logic. Yeah. Now, okay, brief aside. So we've mentioned Arcade in Murder World a number of times. If you haven't listened to those episodes or you don't remember, Arcade is sort of this guy uh, in a white suit with a bow tie and bright red hair who uh, runs basically a murder theme park called Murder World. He kidnaps people who he's hired to assassinate and has them run through it until either it kills them or they manage to get out. Now, we only see this in context of the X-Men who always survive, but presumably he runs a, a lucrative sort of secondary assassination business of people who aren't superheroes, you know, in the background when we're not actually on panel. And that seems to be what's going on here, because as far as we, the reader, know, this is just a random jogger hanging out, doing her thing, and getting splanged. Now, the entry stage of Murder World, always, is a massive pinball machine with clear plastic balls that the victims are stuck in. They get bounced around through it, and then they roll into one of the holes in the sides of the machine, which takes them to various bizarre scenarios, which might be theme parks, might be wars, might be weird robot duplicate things. Murder World is a versatile place. It is, but in the meantime, Nightcrawler has broken in. He's been here a number of times, so he's able to use his tech skills to sort of bypass security so that it doesn't recognize him. And he swings into action during one of the events that she's in and saves her from a random shark that jumps out of a river. Good, good. Yeah. And she's really scared at first, but Kurt is one suave motherfucker. And she's like, get away from me! And he says, an odd name? Were your parents 60s rock stars? And this is the Kurt that we've missed, you know? Where he's just got a smile and a laugh or even people being super bigoted or weird toward him that kind of like charming confidence is what makes nightcrawler nightcrawler I gotta say, again, Arcade and Nightcrawler are such good mutual foils, because we've got Nightcrawler doing the swashbuckly rescue thing as Arcade chases them in a female-presenting robot body wearing, like, a fur showgirl outfit and referring to himself as anti-arcade, and they're all in dune buggies in the desert. And, and then are... biplanes attack, and... If it weren't so deadly, Murder World would be awesome. Right. I, I typically am not a huge fan of arcade and Murder World stories, but when you got Kurt, totally a different story. And I want to say again, with Arcade and Kurt, they're also just, again, two characters who have been perpetually screwed over by the Grimdark. Like, Arcade has been made into a much, much darker, more serious character recently and in other iterations... And it never serves him well. He just, he becomes boring. And this is really what Kurt needs, too. I love this bit right here. This is what I've missed, to dance along the edge of disaster, with only my wits and skills to save me. To face foes who are larger than life, deadly as sin, but who can still be bested. Is it so wrong to want to accomplish something tangible? Lately, the X-Men seem to have been battling shadows, in a sort of grim, ferocious trench warfare where the most fearful of sacrifices don't do a blessed bit of good. Invariably, we lose as much as we gain, if not more. Starring Nightcrawler as the reader. So, eventually, he and this woman, whose name we learn is Judith, end up in this sort of Hong Kong analog that's all creepy and seedy. Judith is lured into a shop where she is, you know, then set upon by a bunch of people with knives. Nightcrawler swings in to pull her out, and, and variations on this rescue happen repeatedly through the rest of the issue, until they finally make their way out. Nightcrawler, I believe, finally bests Arcade by setting a group of, of Arcade's many, many, many X-Men duplicate robots upon him. And so they head out of there, and Judith is sort of scolding Nightcrawler, saying she's that he's just like Arcade. He's addicted to thrills and danger. And then they open the door to her apartment, and there are a bunch of official bowing dudes. Yeah, uh, middle-aged men in suits 
who declare that Judith is not just any random jogger. She is, in fact, Judith Rassendil, last of the Elfbergs, Queen of Ruritania, which all means nothing to me, but which I gather is, is all actually a reference to the novel The Prisoner of Zenda. Yes, it absolutely is. Ruritania is where that takes place. Rassendil is the last name of the main character. You know, Claremont loves referencing stuff like this. And so that's where we end with just this big plot twist amid daring do and adventure and, again, guys... Nightcrawler. And I should say that the Judith Rassendel plot is, is one that we're going to follow through into further storylines. Not this episode, but she will be back, and we will head to Ruritania for more Ruritanian hijinks. Yes, indeed. Now, before we get to the last X-Men issue we're going to cover, I do want to take a very brief detour into a couple issues of Alpha Flight that are kind of important for understanding the context of it. So Alpha Flight number 33 and 34 uh, guest star Wolverine and are really the first meeting of Wolverine and Lady Deathstrike, who will go on to become a major antagonist for Wolverine and the X-Men for a long time to come. Man, I wish Elizabeth were here because Alpha Flight is so neither of our fortes. It's true, but you know, I did at least read these, so I'm just going to go through real quick. So at this point, um, Heather Hudson, who you may recall is the wife of James Hudson and was the leader of Alpha Flight around the time of the X-Men Alpha Flight miniseries. And at this point, specifically, Heather is the widow of James Hudson, who is dead at this point. I don't know how, but you know. His suit blew up. It was unfortunate. Like they do. And so she found another power suit like the one he was wearing, presumably less explosion-oriented, but she's frustrated because Alpha Flight won't train her like Puck is trying to be all protective of her because he's in love with her, and she's like, screw this, screw you guys, I'm gonna go find Logan, I'm gonna go find Wolverine, I bet he'll train me. Although he's also awkwardly in love with her, because literally everyone who's ever been in Alpha Flight is awkwardly in love with Heather Hudson, except maybe for North Star. Yeah, she, she goes and meets up with him, and meanwhile flashes back to, I believe, our first on-panel appearance of the Hudsons meeting Wolverine. He's sort of this... This mostly naked wild man, just little more than an animal, out in the Canadian wilderness, and they find him while they're on their honeymoon. James goes to get help and leaves him with Heather, who's sort of very compassionate toward him and helps kind of bring him down to being more human. And he goes back and forth because he's been in love with Heather as well, of course, and wants to protect her, but he's like, you know what? This whole heroes are born not made thing is bull. I know I had all this, I have my mutant powers and stuff, but I look at Storm right now, I look at Captain America, who currently doesn't have powers, and they're two of the best people I know, they're two of the most effective people I know. Alright, I guess I'll train you. And then at that point, Lady Deathstrike, a woman in samurai armor, shows up with a bunch of ninja. She is claiming that he has stolen something of her, and she wants him to return it. What it turns out she wants him to return specifically is his skeleton. She's like a skeleton repo lady. He That's the worst job. He didn't pay his skeleton bills, and now she's taking it back. Aww. No, so the deal is, very briefly, her father is this dude named Lord Darkwind. We saw him in Daredevil a long time ago. He was like a Japanese sort of gangster trying to regain the honor of Japan after World War II. And he was specifically a failed kamikaze pilot in World War II who has never been able to regain what he sees as the lost honor of not having sacrificed his life in that context. Yeah, so in the Daredevil story, Yuriko, his daughter, ends up killing him, but even given that, she decides, you know what, I need to take up his cause, otherwise I'm never going to be able to live my own life, and thus, she realizes that the adamantium tech that Darkwind was working on must have been appropriated by the people that made Wolverine. She's kind of the anti-Marico, isn't she? She very much is, yeah, because she, you know, is responsible in part for the death of her corrupt criminal mastermind father, but unlike Marico, who tries to turn things around, Yuriko just follows in his footsteps. And this brings up a number of questions for Wolverine and also for Heather Hudson, who realizes via some convenient memories and flashbacks that James knew about Logan and knew about him being created, knew about him going feral. And she wonders if he actually set up their honeymoon so that they would be interrupted by an angry, naked, feral man with metal bones. Right. That if basically the entire thing was just manipulating her into helping him retrieve a lost weapon from Department H. 
This is because Department H is the worst and corrupts literally everything it touches. Stupid Canada. And so there's a big ninja fight, and the short version is that eventually Heather Hudson is the one that turns the tide of the fight, proving, you know, that she doesn't need to be protected, that she does have hero potential. But that's only after Puck accidentally uh, knocks Wolverine in the head with an airplane and knocks him over, which I find hilarious. So with that backstory out of the way, we come to... Uncanny X-Men 205 is a story called Wounded Wolf, and it heralds the return of one of our very, very favorite Uncanny X-Men artists, Barry Windsor Smith, whom we last saw drawing Life Death 2. Oh man, his work is so good, and his work in this is so different. Life Death 1 and 2 are overall very peaceful, conversation-based, internal growth-based stories, and this is all action. One of the things you mentioned when we were talking about this this morning is that you'd wished Barry Windsor Smith had gotten to draw more X-Men, and I actually disagree pretty strongly with that. I love his work, but I think one of the things that makes his stories so powerful in this era is how much they stand out from what's around them. When you see Windsor Smith's art, you know you're getting something really different. It makes those stories, which are usually, again, focused on individual characters, and and again, tonally usually pretty different from the superhero stories happening around them, really, really stand out, and it lends them a really distinctive voice that I don't think they would have had if his had been the default style. You know, you do make a fair point, and I mean, I think differentiating this issue visually from the one surrounding it is a wise move. But yeah, we start out just seeing these sort of machinery, just twisted, garishly colored neon machinery and flesh and disjointed dialogue, ripping, tearing, burning, screaming, pleading, why me, ice, heart, fire, breath, soul, mind, thoughts, I am, that sort of thing. Yeah, I feel like in this and the last few issues, Claremont has suddenly discovered the cool stuff you can do when you stop using punctuation and normal syntax. Yeah, and so what we see is this woman, Yuriko, who last we saw was just a lady in samurai armor. I mean, it was cool samurai armor, but still, being turned into some kind of bizarre monstrous cyborg. There are other people with her undergoing similar processes, and they are specifically in Spiral's body shop. And I think we should talk about that a little bit, because it's weird, and it's gonna keep coming back. We're gonna see more of this. Now, Spiral, of course, is Mojo's henchwoman, formerly Ricochet Rita, that we met in the Longshot Limited series, and is currently a member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which is to say, Freedom Force. Well, currently is an odd term to use for Spiral, because she's also lost in the time stream. She is time unstuck and and crosses her own timeline in ways that even for x-men are pretty convoluted yeah she's got this thing called the body shop where she she soups people up into cyborgs um we're gonna see rachel summers show up there eventually um also betsy braddock psylocke yeah so she's turned yuriko into lady deathstrike now this new augmented cyborg uh, samurai woman and we also see three people we've seen before who are those poor hellfire club guards from uncanny x-men number 133 that wolverine cut up in a basement and they showed up a couple times later these are reese macon and cole and they appear to have taken wolverine's lecture to heart and embraced their transhumanist natures because they're pretty much down with the cyborg thing these days yeah so they head off i mean yuriko is wondering you know what have i done is this is this going to be okay transforming myself into this you know it's worth it i have to do it And while this is going on, Katie Power, the five-year-old youngest member of the Power Pack, is on a choir trip in New York. So I gotta say, the Power Pack comic at this point is really lighthearted. It's really engaging. It's really fun. Every time they overlap with the X-Men, like, I feel like those are the specific instances that are on the list of things that Katie Power will someday tell her therapist about. And in this case, it's having a bloody, feral, naked man emerge from the snow and kidnap her. Well, emerge from the snow while like, being shot at by scary cyborgs. Well, I guess he's not m- naked. He's wearing tiny bikini um, underwear. Yeah, and he is just totally feral. He's the same kind of animalistic person that we saw in that flashback in Alpha Flight. It's like he's degenerated to that point where he was barely human. He is running from Lady Deathstrike and her Reavers, 
And she has decided that she is going to track him down and either she's going to kill him at this point or he is going to kill her. And either way, your death will help avenge my father. Mine will be a welcome release. Either way, I win. Now, Logan at this point is not really in honor mode. He is in feral panic mode. Why he grabs Katie Power is entirely ambiguous at this point. Well, she runs up to him and says, hey, are you okay? And then the police show up and he just grabs her and runs. And they continue to run, her taking care of him, even though she's terrified of him, because, you know, he's her friend, even though he's doing weird stuff and is holding her so hard that he's hurting her. And she's got to help him, right? And this is very much Katie Power's style. She is she is just full of compassion and innocence and bravery. And explosions. And so they continue fleeing Deathstrike and the Reavers, even as the Reavers, you know, blow up cars and stuff around them. And Wolverine gradually is coming back into himself as his healing factor heals his damaged mind as well as his body. At first, he recognizes Katie before he figures out who he is, and he's trying to communicate with her, but he can only speak Japanese at first. He's still sort of getting back his memories, getting back his languages. Finally, he's enough back to himself that he can ask Katie to trust him, such that she bought him some time and now she needs to let him do what he needs to do and to cover her eyes and not look no matter what. He takes out the Reavers, just, you know, silent in the snow, coming up from beneath the boardwalks that they're walking on, coming out of the shadows, taking each one of them out very violently. And they're cyborgs, so they don't die here, but it's still pretty gruesome. This is the comics code compromise, that Wolverine can go full out on sentinel cyborgs and robots. This is really walking that line, especially with Windsor Smith's art, which is very expressive and very organic. Yeah, and so we're seeing, you know, cyborg parts and viscera side by side. It's pretty gross and rough. And so, eventually, it's just Wolverine and Lady Deathstrike, and she's pleased. I hoped, prayed, I knew our duel would end like this. Hunter and hunted, warriors both, face to face, alone, burning their sins away with blood, with only their skill and courage and steel to save them. Of we two, only the best shall survive. Man, this is where I really, really, really wish that you'd been watching Daredevil along with me because there are some parallels that I want to draw and I'm not going to do it because you're (laughs) weird about spoilers. But listeners, if you've been watching, you know the fight I'm thinking of. (laughs) Well, anyway, what this also is, is the death strike that we know. This is the origin of her personality. Not in Daredevil, not in Alpha Flight, right here. And Wolverine can't beat her as Wolverine, so he just lets the animal rage take over. And he tears her apart. There's one page in particular which we should remember to put on the as mentioned which is just three horizontal panels on top of one another, with him just ripping into her, ripping flesh and machinery and cables out. And the last panel is just a close-up of his face, animalistic eyes, blood, flecks of foam, and it's terrifying. So here's a wild thing about that panel, too, is that the Wolverine in that is a dead ringer for Hugh Jackman. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Like, I've seen him drawn as a likeness since the movies came out. With this, it was absolutely uncanny. Totally. But so, yeah, he comes back to himself and just sees partially what he's done, but what really horrifies him is what Yuriko has done to herself. He sees all the machinery under her armor that's merged with her flesh. He sees how much she's sacrificed her own humanity just to become someone who could defeat him. That's often the dichotomy you see between Wolverine and his enemies. He is this monstrous thing, but he is a monstrous thing that he has been made into against his will or without his full understanding. As a juxtaposition, you very, very often see antagonists who instead have started at a very human place and twisted themselves into these sort of parodies, these weird facsimiles of what Department H and what the Weapon X Project forced Wolverine to become. Exactly, and I think Lady Deathstrike is probably the clearest and best example of that. And she begs him to kill her, and he refuses. She says, show mercy, I beg you, let me free! And there's just a sound effect after that, snacked of his claws going back into his wrists, and he says, earn it. 
Now, I want to talk about that sound effect, not just because it's snacked, which is a funny sound effect, but because of the font that it's lettered in. Now, normally when you see Wolverine's claws going in around, you know, snicked or snacked or snicks or whatever, they're very, very angular. They're very, they, I mean, they look like slashes cut in something. This is, it's in a very rounded calligraphy hand. This almost looks like Carolingian or, or Unseal, and it's very different. It's much more controlled. It's a font that looks rounded and deliberate and cultured in ways that sound effects almost never do, and Wolverine's sound effects never do. Right. He is very much being what she's not. He's very much being what he has decided to become. It's sort of the sound effect embodiment of the triumph of the man over the beast. And so he leaves Yuriko right there. Of course, she'll be back many times. Goes and finds Katie Power, who's been still covering her eyes this entire time. And they say that even though he was scary, they promise to be friends forever and walk off into the snow hand in hand. And... If you haven't read this issue and the Nightcrawler one before it, I especially recommend both of them. That's 204 and 205. And we'll be putting a lot of art from those up on the Visual Companion, which you can find at rachelandmiles.com. More on that a little bit later. First, though, you've got questions. The Alaskan Hero on Tumblr asked, Did Rogue ever make peace with Carol Danvers over stealing her powers, memories, etc.? The short version is yes, but a lot of it was really in the background for many, many, many years. They didn't really have any big heart-to-hearts that I could find anyway for a long time. That is to say, the real Carol Danvers, not the one that was stuck inside Rogue's head. The two stories I did find are actually both from the last ten years. There was a Ms. Marvel story, this was in Ms. Marvel Volume 2, number 9 and 10, where Rogue and Ms. Marvel have to team up to fight an alternate reality Carol Danvers, who became an alcoholic after Rogue stole her powers, and has since been going through the time stream after her universe was destroyed, killing every Rogue and every Carol Danvers she can find. So they bond a bit over that. And then in X-Men Legacy 269 and 270, which is part of Avengers vs. X-Men, this is when the Phoenix Five, or the Penis Five if you prefer, are basically ruling the world with this sort of semi-utopia. They imprison Ms. Marvel. Ms. Marvel and Rogue fight, and uh, Ms. Marvel gets imprisoned by magic and limbo, and after this, Rogue has a change of heart because she feels this isn't right and goes to rescue her. So at this point, Rogue becomes a renegade from the X-Men, and they have to team up there as well. So I think after those two things, they're on pretty decent terms, and after, you know, years and years of seeing each other do very good work from afar. Meanwhile, Isabel M. emailed us to ask, I'd like to find a way to introduce my daughter to comics when she's three years old. I randomly picked up a Tiny Titans book, but the first couple of stories featuring girl characters were about boys and clothes. I'd prefer to introduce her to the Marvel Universe anyway. Do you know of any good X-Men books for a very young person? Well, Isabel, you are in luck because as it happens, we keep a three-year-old expert on retainer for circumstances just such as these. This is Kestrel, who you may have seen with her brother Jasper in the video where they are pretending to be us. They are the best kids ever. They are going to take over this podcast someday. So I got in touch with Kestrel's mom, Katie, to ask about what books had worked really well for Kestrel. And Katie particularly recommends a picture book called These Are the X-Men. She says it's easy to read over and over. It's fun to copy pictures out of. These Are the X-Men is part of Disney's World of Reading series. It's a picture book, not a comic. And it includes a couple other X-Books as well, although those are intended for slightly older readers. I think These Are the X-Men is for ages three to five, and the other two are for ages six to eight. Now, Kestrel and her brother are also both really big fans of the X-Men and Power Pack comic and X-Men First Class, the comic, not the movie, as well as the original animated series. Although Katie qualifies um, that there are some adult themes in all of those that you're going to need to be ready either to read around or to have some challenging conversations about. And honestly, I think that's going to be the case with a lot of potentially kid-friendly X stuff. Like, there's so little intended specifically for young kids that it's mostly going to have to involve casting a really wide net, reviewing material ahead of time for yourself, and having a really good sense of what your specific child might or might not be ready for. I will say I know there are a number of parents who listen to this podcast. 
if you are a parent and you've got a preschool aged kid who you read X-Men with or who's an X-Men fan and you found books or stories that work really well, please let us know. Weigh in on the comments to this post so that we can, you know, share those resources around. Yep. I got to start it early. Make X-Fans from the very beginning. And Marvel, make more kid-friendly stuff because we get this question a lot and there is so little that we can recommend and we'd really love for there to be more and we're pretty sure just based on the number of people who write to us that there's a market for it. Oh, absolutely. Um, and really anyone with kids, um, if you're not reading them The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl right now, then you're doing them a disservice. Check that book out. It's not X-Men related, but it is wonderful. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast and one of the rewards for one of the Patreon tiers that goes into that is thanks on the podcast in your choice of a variety of ridiculous voices, to which end I will turn things over to the one and only Arcade. Mr. Chambers, Ms. Locke, good work bringing our new friend here and making him comfortable. I don't know why our client wants this, uh, Mikey Leota dead, and I don't care! Let's get the pinball machines, robot clones, and buzzsaw bumper cars ready. This is gonna be fun! Thank you, Arcade. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is, as always, recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Bobby Roberts, the producer of the Geek Remix trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website, rachelandmiles.com. You can also check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. Like Rachel said, this podcast is totally listener-supported and ad-free, and that's made possible by our awesome Patreon supporters. Guys, thank you so much. If you'd like to become a supporter, check out the link at the top of our website, and check out the new cool milestone girls we have. Next week, we'll be back as the Beyonder kills the New Mutants. That dick. That dick.